0: Hi, Mark. Hey, Dana. So today on
1: the podcast, we interview our colleague David Doherty, who is a oil demand analyst here at BNEF, and we are talking about a note he wrote called Jet Fuel, Turbulence Ahead for Demand Growth, and I can't help but fixate on the word turbulence. Mark, have you ever been in bad turbulence in an airplane before?
2: Sure, but just once really made me nervous. I was coming in from Guatemala into Newark in New Jersey. And it was in a rainstorm, lightning storm, and it was just bouncing all around and I broke into a cold sweat. Just once. Just once, really. Yeah. How about you?
1: Well, apparently once is all it takes. So I had some really bad turbulence once, which was one of those where the flight attendants took their seats and people's bums were coming out of their seats and everybody was sitting there praying. The woman next to me kept tears in her eyes asking to see her children again. And um, it ended up causing some pretty serious flight anxiety for me. And I ended up going to a class. I tried to book a hypnotherapist, but unfortunately, I was unable to get in with the hypnotherapist because I was flying so often for work, I was unable <laughs> to irony. get our to get our <laughs> schedules to match up, which actually I think it speaks a lot of volume over the demand growth here. Right, Is we're it,
2: still flying despite all this, we're right? We're still
1: flying. So I was miserable on every flight, but I refused deep down my stubbornness overrode the level of anxiety I had about flying because I refused to let it limit my life. It's pretty common for people not to like flying in turbulence, but we do it anyway. And so when we say turbulence ahead for demand growth, it's actually the demand part of you and me and everybody we know wanting to fly. That's not the main issue. It's all the other stuff that goes into ramping up this industry. So let's jump in today with David Doherty and hear what he has to say about airline demand going in the future. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: You might have noticed in the news that there have been a recent increase in what's being termed as flight shaming, where people are making other people feel guilty for taking flights because of their carbon footprint. And that might lead you to believe that maybe the overall amount of flight that's happening on commercial aircraft is decreasing. But David, you're an oil analyst here at BNF, and you have a view that's a little bit contrary to that. So let us know what you think is actually going to be happening with airline demand going forward.
3: Yeah, I mean, just by looking at the data, it tells a totally opposite story of that. And the interesting part is, it's a great story for us if we're looking at something from our London office or in Europe. But for a lot of people, flights new. They want to go on holiday, and uh, are we going to deny them that? We expect, and most others also expect, that demand for flying is going to continue to grow.
2: Where is this demand coming from?
3: Mostly um, China and Asia-Pacific. Okay. Um, And that's from a small base, but that is pretty much where the growth is coming from. What's interesting is developed Europe, also growing. As we change the way Europe is structured, we expanded the EU 10 years ago, right? So you can now travel to other parts of Europe without visas or easier access. And the low-cost carrier came around. And they fly a lot. And they're super cheap. And that opens up to a whole new market. People who couldn't, you know, afford to, to fly before, they can fly now.
1: What time horizon are we talking about?
3: Two thousands onwards, you see a spike up. The only place in the world really where you're kind of seeing flat demand or steady ish demand is the US.
2: And you don't really have the low cost carrier there. You do. I and mean, you kind of do, but you don't have your I mean, I moved here, what, six, seven years ago and I didn't we didn't have Ryanair or EasyJet or anything like that in the mm-hmm. US when I was
3: there.
1: Oh, I think we do. On the West Coast. Southwest.
2: Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. JetBlue. Maybe bis- so. Bis- biggest domestic airline, I guess, is, a, is Southwest. Yeah. There's a few. It's a different structure. I've been gone a long time. <laughs> 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 it's different. So the, the European story is a lot of connecting the New East to what was Western Europe, right? right? So you've got this expanded wealth in Europe, which didn't exist before. The U.S. hasn't expanded its wealth uh, to the same extent because you don't have brand new markets coming into one large market, right? So you're kind of moving the goalpost a little bit. In terms of fuel consumption as well, the system in the US gets quite efficient. So you've got fairly flat oil consumption, um, jet oil consumption, whereas in Europe, jet fuel demand is growing and growing. It's slowing down now, but it's still growing. APAC, it's going through the roof. You've got lots of new low-cost carriers coming in, traditional carriers uh, traveling longer distances you know you can connect now in china if you're going to singapore or to australia previously that would never happen so yeah the whole system's changing and the demand profile as a result is changing
1: So flight shaming, whether or not it exists, might not actually be decreasing demand as much as we might think. It's a bit like when I want to eat some candy and I don't want my kids to see, I'm going to go around the corner, kind of stand in a closet so they don't see me eating the candy. But the reality is everybody wants it. You're saying this is growing in Asia. Is there not a lot of infrastructure that needs to be added in order to make that take place? And what does that look like for that market? I mean, in terms of fuel supply or airports or anything else that you might need and have a massively growing industry?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of pipes that need to be put together for this to work, essentially. So the biggest growth centers in terms of countries that are expected to sort of lead the market in the future are China, the US, interestingly, and India. Now, India and China are really interesting. When you think about it, um, they're underserved massively. So, in the UK and the US, we travel on average about two times per year each, right? In Germany, which has a really good rail network, it's about once per year. But if you look at India and China, you're looking at 0.2, 0.4 trips per year per person, right? So, it's tiny and it's massively undersaturated. What they don't have is the network we have in Europe and in the US um, of airports and connection points and ways to get off the ground right you need that runway so for example in India it's got a ton of runways that are just laying idle so the government of they have a regional connectivity scheme in order to get people flying and mobile so they're bringing back runways that were previously essentially derelict right they're also trying to build new runways so the capacity they have at some of their uh, biggest airports is expanding And they're building new airports. So they want to double the amount of airports in India by 2025. It's pretty ambitious. India hasn't got a great record of building these massive projects out on time. But nonetheless, even if that's 5, 10 years delayed, doubling the airport numbers is pretty chunky.
2: And right now it's somewhere around 150? I think it's like in and around 100
3: in in, Mm -hmm. uh, India. Yeah. And in and around 200 in China. And they want to increase theirs to 425 by 2035. So again, doubling over a 15-year time period. Now, when China say they want to do it, they do it. So it's a slightly different uh, way. They're going to build out that capacity. And actually, in China already, we're seeing brand new big mega runways and big mega
2: airports being built. So we're building out all these airports. Talk to us about airplanes. Once you build all the airports, you actually need airplanes to fill them. So who's winning there?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting time for the airline sector. What we're seeing is a, a, a shift in the business model of airplane manufacturers. So we used to have really big airplanes and you put everybody on it, like the A380 from Airbus, right? Yeah. Four big engines, a lot of people, um, which is actually quite efficient on a per passenger mile basis, but expensive. And it's hard to fill them. The key for the airline industry is getting as many people into every aircraft so as possible. And the range is pretty chunky, right? So on average, about 82% of all seats globally are filled, but that varies. So you've got some traditional airlines uh, like Air China or BA or American Airlines who are in and around 82%, 83%. Others on the low end, like Emirates, are in around 77%, 78%. And then you've got like Europeans Reiner, 96%. So they're really filling these. And essentially what you're doing is meeting that demand with the same airplane. So it's much, much more efficient. And airplanes um, are much more efficient than they were 20 years ago, but they have about a 25-year lifespan. But every new generation airplane is about 20% more efficient than the previous, right? So if we're building this out and you're filling them up, you can meet a lot of this new demand. And airplanes are happy, You know, airlines are happy, the environment's a little
2: bit happier, I guess. We're all still traveling. But with that is more demand for oil, right? So despite a more efficient airplane... I saw you put in a uh, forecast in, in, in the note that forecasted roughly between 40 and 80% increase in oil demand for aviation fuel. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's correct.
2: Yeah. It's a hard, hard
3: industry to decarbonize. You know, shipping is hard to decarbonize. Trucks are hard to decarbonize. But this is next level. Not only is it hard to, you know, switch to a biofuel, but the aviation um, industry is incredibly safety conscious. But it's difficult to get a different grade fuel into the airplane and ensure that it's safe to take off. So we are seeing some small things like uh, biojet, which at the moment is very expensive, and technologies from the likes of Airbus, where they want to hybridize existing jet um jet engines and essentially maybe run auxiliary power off an electric motor or aid the systems in some way with electric motors or batteries. So that makes it more efficient. But ultimately, it's a long way away. So we're looking at 2030, 2040, Airbus have targeted their hybrid planes to take off. So batteries, pure pure batteries are, you know, even further away than that. So yeah, it does mean that there's more oil in the world because there is no alternative. And oil and gas companies have responded by investing, right? They want to produce petrochemicals and jet fuel. They're the two things that are pretty safe to grow over the next 20 years. And it saves them from worrying about a stranded asset. If you want to produce a bunch of gasoline now, you've got to worry if EVs are going to take your market away. You're less worried if there's going to be an airplane in the sky with a battery. Slightly different angle.
1: But tell me a little bit more about the biofuels part. Because you can have some mix in there. And it does, is it as efficient? What are the economics of it?
3: Yeah, 100%. It's um, it's expensive, is the answer. And biofuels are not one thing. You've got totally different types of biofuels in different generations. And they are now being sort of pinned as the answer to everything. It's hard to decarbonize trucks and ships, like I said. But biofuels are earmarked for that. They're also earmarked for 15 to 10% of um, fuels that are on uh, the roads in the U.S., right? that competes too there's only so much you can really generate if you have like a natural source to make biofuels like say brazil it makes sense absolutely to turn that into 27 percent of your road fuel otherwise you're competing with everybody else for all of this new biofuel which we've yet to you know we haven't seen and that's why the prices are high the supply is not there and it's also not it's, it's it's not as well proven i guess as jet jet fuel Um, And there's less of it available, but airlines are turning to it. It's almost a, I don't want to say a marketing campaign in certain ways, but it definitely does well for green credentials of airlines if they're running off of biojet. So we saw it, for instance, at uh, Davos, where we've seen some of the corporate flights being fueled by biojet. That's great, but they've all flown in on private jets, (laughs) right? It's not quite the solution that you're kind of thinking, right?
1: So we've all been at the airport or maybe in advance gotten the email saying that our flight's been canceled. And in some circumstances, that flight gets canceled because the flight isn't full. Mm -hmm. One would then assume that at least to some degree that uh, airlines and CO2 emissions might be in some way aligned because they want to be as efficient as possible because that's where their margins come from. And this is a pretty competitive space to make money in, is it not? Or is it a robust space?
3: No, 100% margins are thin. We see airlines go bust quite regularly. I mean, we're in Europe. There's it's five, six examples in the last decade, decade and a half, right? So yeah, absolutely. It's in the interest of the airline not to have big exposure to oil prices, essentially. And somewhere between 25, 30% of their margin is down to the oil price or the jet fuel price in the case of airlines, right? So they want to shift away from that. The answer so far has been more efficient airplanes or lighter airplanes, or ones that can operate in a much more efficient way. So not flying through two other cities or through one other city, instead flying directly. You use less fuel because you've only got to take off once and you've only got to land once, and it's much more efficient. A jet is much more efficient in cruising altitude than when it's coming down and circling an airport, waiting for a landing spot, or when it's delayed um, and trying to get off the ground, right? Taking off with all that fuel on board. So yeah, there's a lot of ways they could save fuel, operate efficiently and have the most efficient engine and fill the airplane. The highest load factor is the best way to do it.
1: Does this have a net benefit for CO2 emissions? And then what's the flip side of that? If
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the distance versus fuel efficiency profile of some flights, it's horrendous. So if you fly uh, Washington, D.C. to New York, roughly 10% of the fuel is burned before you even take off the ground. So just moving around, the AC on, you're you know, getting your safety briefing, the lights have to run off of something, you're in a queue, you're sixth in line to take off, 10%. That's crazy. And between that taking off and the landing fuel profile, a flight that's short can have 40% of its fuel just from coming down, not the cruising part of the flight. So when you make these things much more efficient, particularly things like airplane operations at an airport, you can, you can cut that number down pretty quickly and... Things like digital sensors, digitalization can really help this. So we've seen a few early indicators that there's low-hanging fruit to be had, right? You can, you can really make the whole system much more efficient and save cash, right? You're saving cash, you're also saving CO2 emissions.
1: It seems that all roads lead to the airlines themselves in terms of the attention that maybe you know we're talking about now and the end consumer, but really the innovation's gotta be somewhere else, right? They don't manufacture the airplanes and they they don't make the fuels. Mm-hmm. Where is most of the innovation coming from, aside from the biofuels and electric planes that you've already addressed? Where is the the other innovation?
3: Yeah, it, it can come from all different angles. Um, air traffic controllers, for example, they can do a much better job. If you delay a flight and tell them in advance, they can be delayed and, and fly slower at a height when it's much more efficient, instead of circling around Heathrow Airport, we've all been there. You can also have airports that know better how to direct their traffic. So we saw a study in China say, if you can use AI to hit your taxi um, takeoff time, so when you hit back from the airport and go towards the runway, you can save 15% on your fuel bill. I mean, fuel bill translates into fuel consumption, translates into carbon. The airline's happy, carbon emissions are happy, the person is not delayed, right? You're not sitting on that airplane again. So there's a lot of things. It's going to come from all different angles. And Policy has to play a role. It's a little bit more dull, but they're trying to do what the shipping industry has done in terms of the IMO. It's just not quite having the same execution, I guess, is a fair way to say it without being too critical. It's a really weak policy we're seeing in Corsia coming out. Who governs it? Um, It's the United Nations, essentially, the ICAO. It's It's a body of the UN.
1: Can you explain what Corsia is to us?
3: Yeah, so essentially the goal of Corsia is that by 2050 growth in emissions to 2020 will be net zero pretty much. And to do that, there's a few different mechanisms. So you can either offset your carbon emission. If you offset your carbon emission, you've got to buy a credit essentially. They haven't yet defined what that credit is. You can use a CORSIA eligible fuel, which is like a biofuel or, and this is the big or, a jet fuel that is 10% cleaner than a benchmark jet fuel that they've currently recommended. So if you're a clean oil refinery and you get your oil in a, less carbon intensive way, let's say Saudi Arabian oil, which is not super carbon intensive, that can be uh, registered as, of course, the eligible fuel and you can use it. So there's a lot of potential there for oil jet fuel to be used and some biofuels. And then this sort of carbon offset, we don't know the price of yet. So there's a lot of moving parts. It's really limited though, because it's only international flights. It's optional pretty much before the end of this decade. And some countries have just said, no, we're not taking part, crucially India. Which again, third biggest market in terms of growth that's expected. Russia have said no. Philippines have said no. You're getting quickly into pretty chunky terms. Less than half of all the fuel consumed today would be covered under CORSIA.
2: Is this something where countries will provide the the stick, to, you know, to this to this market, or is something where companies will pick up the slack and decide to take this on themselves? I know we've heard of JetBlue having a goal for net zero by what, 2040, 2050? It's both sides, I think.
3: Right for airlines, they don't want to pay the bill. Um, for countries to have to be seen to moving towards this Paris Agreement. So we've seen um, Europe, for example, float the idea of including the airline industry in the EU ETS system. So that would be quite interesting to see how it works. But also watching that are the Chinese. So they have earmarked aviation to fall under the uh, emissions trading scheme out there as well. So these will essentially have a much bigger impact on the emissions profile, particularly EU ETS, because they say you need to lower emissions not net zero and keep it flat. You need to every year lower it. And then in the US, they're looking at applying um, levies or equivalent programs. It's sort of TBD to regulate it there. Now, if China, Europe and the US acted even on their own domestic flights, you're talking much, much bigger numbers and it becomes a thing as opposed to international flights if you want to take part in our scheme.
2: So what do you see as the one thing having the biggest impact in the next decade?
3: There's a few secret weapons out there that could really take away from jet fuel demand or air travel demand in the next 10 years. High-speed rail, I think, is the big one. So China have built out this gigantic project, infrastructure project, over the last 10 years, and they're continuing to do so. Um, and that could have a big impact, particularly on domestic flights, because you can uh, you can change the taxes on that, you can encourage people to travel there, and we've seen that to a certain extent just recently in Germany. But we saw a study from the IEA a while ago, uh, saying that between 1993 and 2000, the Eurostar took about 50% of the passenger demand out of that flight path. So if that happens, you're talking about real numbers. But TBD, if that actually makes an impact, I think it will. I think that's the most important thing in the short term. That plus policy, because technology is just a little bit too far away right now. It's too bad.
2: I'm just looking forward to the Hyperloop and the suborbital rockets. Text Elon. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Cool, so this was the first in a series, right, on aviation from BNF, what's next in this line of research?
3: Yeah, it is the first in a series for us, and it's an exciting new new area for us to research. The next few things that we're going to take a look at are biojet fuel specifically, because it's kind of the solution for everything at the moment, we want to question, is it actually the solution, and at what cost is it just, you know, what kind of solution, what cost? And then we're going to look at the EU ETS scheme for aviation, what does it mean? And then that lets us see, is that mechanism one that might work elsewhere? And that would be quite interesting, I think, because, again, we're seeing the Chinese looking at including aviation in their carbon market. And if they do that, you're talking big numbers. Again, China can do things overnight that we can't quite do in Europe at the same speed. David, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
2: Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.